work six days a week. I'm not taking school for the summer so that I can make more money, but I'll be back in school and then it'll be the same thing. I'll have a day off, a week or so. So it kind of, uh, I had wanted to bring up the topic of division and conquest under capitalism because what got me thinking about it was that I've been kind of trying to connect with some people about some radical ideas lately. And it has been such a struggle to get two or more working adult people together in the same place at a time that works well for them, particularly a time when it's easier to conspire, as it were. And some folks would say that this isn't an accident, and that part of the design of capitalism itself is to create and deepen divisions between people, between communities and individuals, and some examples of this might be the obvious, like race or the gender binary, but then it's other things too, like the way that we can divide families, even, uh, putting people on bizarre, flexible work schedules, uh, where you have to have full-time availability for a part-time schedule, because knows when your boss will schedule you next week and you only get your schedule one maybe two weeks in advance and if you want a day off then you have to know about it two weeks in advance at least I do even though I only get my schedule a week ahead of time so it's a it's a pretty big burden for people who are you know working class working people and trying to get together with their peers time that your boss might give you. So it's a little bit dismal to think about it in that way, and it becomes really apparent when when you are trying to deliberately get people together, and not just, you know, casual friends or things like that, but, you know, comrades 
get something done for your community on, on more than just kind of an individual level. And uh, so how do they do this to us? And how is it that this affects the working class so much more than upper classes? If we all have to work to survive under capitalism, then shouldn't it affect the ruling classes also and the bosses? It does, but not in the same way. And the thing about it is it's a matter of control, right? So if the bosses and, you know, the landowners and whoever, they control these basic aspects of our life, like the time that we have. And if we are... The goal is, you know, if you stay in that, in that mindset that values productivity and values busyness and uh, things like that uh, over other you know, values, you know, collectivism and family time and whatever, then your goal will be to go from being kind of a low, lowly person on the ladder whose time is controlled by someone else, who's working long hours for not very much pay, to being someone closer to the top who controls the hours, who says, I decide how often I work, how long, and for how much money. And I decide what my workload is and how I delegate that workload to other people who might make less money than I do. So, you have deciders in the equation who are controlling the distribution of working hours and how that affects different people. And, you know, we don't live in a perfectly systematic uh, environment where things are done fairly. So if the boss doesn't like you, you know, maybe you'll work more hours. Maybe it won't matter as much that you have a dance recital or something to go to or that you're, you've been planning this thing with your wife or whoever for weeks and weeks because, you know, so-and-so had a dentist appointment and the boss needs you to cover it. And, you know, if they do like you, then, you know, that's super. Maybe you'll work less or you'll get the better deal or whatever. And they keep us doing these things and they keep us invested in this because as a culture, we teach people to value demands on our time. So if we meet somebody who's not actually a very busy person, they actually have a lot of free time and they're comfortable with their lifestyle and they're not, you know, giving up an arm and a leg to work better hours and make more money that for, you know, for the long run, uh, ideal of a retirement plan or, you know, I'll get to spend all the time with my family and my friends that I want later in life <laughs> when I can't enjoy it anymore. Uh, when we meet those people who, who already have the free time, we devalue them. We say, well, there must not really be that much that society needs from them if, if they have all of this time on their hands. Me, on the other hand, I barely have free time. Someone must need a lot from me. I must be doing a lot for my community or for my world or for my business or whatever. And so it becomes a power trip. And we teach the working class that their value is defined by how much they work and how often they work and how much time they put in. And I actually was listening to a podcast a while back about that exact same problem. And uh, specifically, it was kind of in reference to have all these gadgets and all this technology blah, 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 that is supposed to 
maximize our time and minimize our workload, why are we still so busy and why are we busier than ever actually? And part of the answer to that, at least in the context of this podcast, I can't recall what it was unfortunately, was that we have learned to like being busy and not even having things to do is not what it's about. It's about having the demand on our time and that if we don't have the demand on our time, we don't know what to do and we feel devalued. And so it pointed out this sort of subtle phenomenon of like when someone asks you what you're doing on Saturday and you say, oh, I can't do such and such because I'm busy. And even though you might be kind of missing out on something, you feel a little bit righteous when you say it. And you kind of smile to yourself inside and say, yeah, I'm busy. I have people who need me. I need to do these things. And you feel needed and wanted. And that it's satisfying on some level to turn people down and say, I'm busy. And uh, as a solution to that problem, basically the suggestion was stop feeling that joy. Stop giving yourself that gratification of delighting in your busyness and, you know, valuing your busyness so much that you're okay with giving up things that you want and things that you like doing, you know? If you used to play a sport or you used to hang out with your friends or you used to go to the movies with your sister or whoever, you know, have dinner with your mom, have a day with your significant other, go weed pasting, go, you know, ride a bike, pick up trash for your community, whatever stop giving those things up and if you have to feel sad about it like you actually do feel sad that your society is so set on preventing you from having joy in your life that you have to give these things up and that it wants you to feel good about doing it so that you'll keep doing it and you'll stop finding ways to avoid it so really actually prioritize the things that you love and you know find it's important for us at this point to find ways to just work less and to be okay with working less yeah we have to save money and we have to pay our bills and survive surviving under capitalism but there are some things we can survive without and i think that it's really important that we decide what those things are in an active sort of way so that we can really maximize the time that we have on this planet with the people that we love maximizing the time that we have to conspire with our comrades for how we can better distribute this greater access to the time that we have and the uh, better distribute access to the things that will enable us all to work less. Things like automation, for example. I'll talk about that on a, a different segment. surplus value of your labor and it's essentially what keeps capitalism running is that value of your labor that you're not paid for and that you'll never be paid for because if you are paid for it that's cutting into the company's profits and it's those profits that 
supply the things like the product the company sells or the amenities for the employees. So what do you do? Well, one solution is to steal from work. Um, there's a handy little holiday called Steal From Work Day that it, it, it's already passed. It's June now, so it's, uh, I think, April 15th. But really, when you get into the swing of things, every day is Steal From Work Day, right? <laughs> so it's even like innocuous things. If you don't like the product that your company sells, steal their toilet paper or their cleaning products or their pencils or paper clips, whatever, whatever you feel like. Anything that will help you to not have to pay your already meager wages in order to better your life. Because your company will not help you do that. They're actually specifically invested in not helping you do that. Uh, so, you know, go to it, guys. That's just like a little interlude I thought I'd add in there since uh, my last tangent reminded me of it. Um, my last thing about stealing, I think, was just generally that you should steal, not necessarily stealing from your company. So I might elaborate on that idea a little bit more in the future, but for now, we'll just leave it at that. Company steals your time, steal your labor, steal back. So moving on with the topic of the division of labor, which is kind of broadly the tendency of capitalism to create ever more specialized jobs for people and the scope of their job becomes very narrow and very very particular and this can be more efficient for things like mass production but it creates even more of a problem of alienation from one's work and from the product of one's labor because now you're only responsible for a small part of your labor and it alienates you from your co-workers, your colleagues, you know, people who have different jobs than you, you know. It also creates a lot of space for the employer to create huge wage disparity for one particular job or another. If, if, if everybody has their own specialized positions, then the company can value those positions as it sees fit. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to have to do with uh, the, the true contributions that that position is making or how, it, how necessary it is to the whole of the product. And when you don't have strict divisions of labor, for example, in a kind of communist sense of things, where jobs don't exist and employers, the employer-employee relationship doesn't exist to prescribe a job with a job description, anybody can do really anything they want or need to do. Suddenly you're, you know, you're not just, uh, you're not just a, a cashier for, for a grocery store who doesn't sweep floors, they don't stock shelves, they don't do really anything other than stand behind the cash register. Instead, you might be a baker sometimes, and then other times you might help out with your food bank, or other times you might help out cleaning trash or landscaping or things like that. Without a strict division of labor, it's much easier to effectively allocate labor where it's actually needed. And some one thing that kind of got me thinking about the, the different 
roles that different labor can play in a movement, especially, was there were a few music videos that I had seen recently, and kind of the role of artists and agitators and such in a movement is um, very interesting. It's very versatile, of course, and it's also very easy to exploit, <laughs> because when you're an entertainer or an agitator, you don't necessarily need to be on the front lines. In fact, that's probably not the best place for you. Um, one example that I think about is Pussy Riot, who is, you know, a multimedia kind of talent group, but they were also activists. They also did a lot of hands-on activism in Russia and other parts of Europe, and routinely were arrested and imprisoned. I'm not sure which of them are free right now and which of them are still in prison, unfortunately, but it's it's a pretty, it's a big deal for them, and they do put out a lot of interesting content. Um, and one could argue that, well, certainly, if they put their time in their place to do both of those things, the activism and, and the entertaining end, for some people, it might be more effective to just pick one or the other, for the simple reason that when you're an entertainer, a lot of responsibility is taken off of you. You you aren't out on the streets, you know, stealing, vandalizing, cutting locks, you know, jumping fences, things like that. You're not technically guilty of any crime, in most places anyway, like in America, you can say almost whatever you want if you're an entertainer. That's just part of the benefit of entertaining. It's just seen as the art. It's, you know, part of your art is part of your act. You know, if anything com comes of that act, like someone is inspired to bomb a building or something like that, it's technically not your responsibility because you never told anyone to do that. So there, there is a really important role for artists and musicians and entertain entertainers to play. And one thing that... So I'll just shoot right up into it. There were two music videos that I saw in recent times. One was a Depeche Mode video called Where's the Revolution? It's from their their kind of recent album, Spirit, which I think came out in 2017. The other video was by Rammstein, or Ramstein, or whoever. Uh, and that video was called Radio from their album Deutschland, which came out this year, actually, uh, in February 2019. And I thought that these videos were kind of interesting because both are done, you know, made and produced and whatever by white men, a group of white men, one in America, you know, one in uh, the UK and one in Germany. And both of them have kind of like a edgy, revolutionary sort of vibe, but I think they're really different in some pretty important ways. One thing that struck me about the Depeche Mode video, Where's the Revolution, is that <laughs> both in lyrical content and in video content, the literal events happening in the video are a white man on a pedestal lecturing a group of various you know, choreographed dancers, sometimes holding red flags, or, you know, sometimes they're police or whatever, and he's asking, where's the revolution? Come on, people, you're letting me down. <laughs> and I really, you know, I like Depeche Mode overall, like, they're a good, good band and whatever. Uh, I wouldn't say, I don't know that they're comrades exactly, 
it certainly seems like they're trying to position themselves as such with a video like this. Um, and they have other various kind of progressive or liberal or whatever messages like, uh, you know, free love and uh, things like that, various kind of anti-commercialism. But the imagery really struck me as ironic. <laughs> and I don't know exactly if that's intentional or not. If it's intentional, I, I really like it. If it's not intentional, I completely fucking hate it. Like, how could you... Are you fucking kidding? <laughs> Where's the revolution? And the thing about it is that for me, that's a very, very loaded topic because I've been asked that in literal, like, by literal people asked, what revolution? You know, in a scoffing kind of dismissive way, like, huh, there's no revolution. I don't see any revolution happening. You know, what are you people doing about this? <laughs> and it's always with that, what are you people doing? You know? And responsibility, turns out, tends to fall not on the privileged parties like white men and straight men and, you know, wealthy people, but it falls on women and it falls on black people and brown people and queers and the disabled and transgender. We're always having a revolution. Our whole life is a revolution. We don't have the op- we don't get to turn it off, you know, and it's very nuanced and complicated and difficult and it's a very serious matter so when when I see white men asking where's the revolution it's just business as usual that's just the day in and day out for me so there was really nothing particularly edgy about that message and the rest of the song is just you know the typical like you know it's like talking about how bad things are and how oppressed we are and how we should do something about it you know yeah no shit cool <laughs> thanks thanks white guy for letting me know. So anyway, that's enough about uh, Depeche Mode on that anyway. And the Rammstein video, um, I really liked it because the, the perspective and the storytelling was much, much more in-depth. And the thing with these things is like, you always have to sort of be careful because revolutionary uh, sentiment really easy to capitalize on. People do it all the time. And, you know, like, there's freaking, um, like, baby onesies that say this machine kills fascists, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm sorry, no it doesn't. Fuck off. <laughs> somebody, you're trying to get somebody to buy that, somebody to spend money on that shit, and it's just, that's literally the opposite <laughs> of what that does, actually, in fact. Uh, but anyway, so whenever, you know, a group of white men comes out with, you know, content about, uh, you know, the revolution or police brutality or, you know, working class sentiment, stuff like that. It's always a little bit, you know, cause for concern. But what I liked about this video is that it creates sort of a story. It's not accusing anyone of not being comradely enough, you know, like the Depeche Mode video seems to be doing. And the, the band is positioned in kind of like a radio tower situation. And they're performing their song, and then there's these background images of, um, you know, kind of the usual indie stuff, like people fucking their radios and uh, stuff like that, uh, smashing things in the street. But, you know, it kind of, a lot of it is women, first of all. It's 
like kind of this aesthetic of like a women's revolution almost and which of course is ample space to have titties flying around everywhere um which is great <laughs> but um you know and it's there's these police everywhere and they're busting people for having radios and for listening to the radio and for singing and stuff like that and that's kind of the whole point of the song it's like you know you're 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 trying to hear everything and be in tune to everything and you know get information and be entertained and stuff like that and you're not allowed to you're not allowed to listen to this you know dangerous music and this you know these dangerous messages and stuff like that um you're not allowed to have solidarity and you know the other difference is that that's a very real thing that happens in oppressive environments you know like being from germany the, this band is you know of course has a unique perspective on this it's not it's you know a cheap perspective in a way you know to kind of capitalize on holocaust imagery but it's still a very real sort of influence in germany unfortunately uh with you know and even in america we have our nazis and stuff they take tons of their cues from Germany and German movements and you know fascism is very real and very fresh there still so as much as we want to say oh you know how how cute to be like oh the holocaust remember that Germany we did that but it's still so pertinent and that's what's really sad about it and I think that Rammstein is in a really interesting place because to me, I, I didn't really like them that much as a band because they're very edgy and very provocative and everything like that, but they kind of like lack this sort of depth or complexity to me, but with this kind of newer content that they have, the their album, their 2019 album is just called Deutschland, and um, you know, they have, they even have a song on it called Deutschland that's just about Deutschland and just all the, the grotesque bullshit that it's been about. Um, and that it was built on its history, you know, going back to medieval times. And, um, you know, their other song, Auslander, is kind of similar. It's like anti-colonialist, you know, it's about like going to foreign countries and documenting and, you know, having sex with the people there and all these things. Um, and trying to improve upon societies that really never asked for you, even. Uh, so some pretty edgy content happening on that new album and really really cool video uh content and what a few particular things about this video really struck me one was that in kind of the climax of the video the band is you know kind of standing and waiting because there's no lyrics going on it's just kind of music and the police are storming into this building and they're flooding in and when they come in and they they kind of raid the band, they go to swing on them with their baton, and they're, they're an apparition, you know, they don't hit anything because they're, they're radio people, they're not, they, they're not real, they're not there to be struck upon, so the police are trying to attack this sort of specter of, um, you know, a band in a radio tower, and, you know, while they were, as they were doing it, as the police are storming up, the, the singer kind of looks to the side and nods, and you don't ever see who he's nodding to. He just sort of nods to his uh, right side a little bit. And I kind of had to think on this a little bit, because it was a little bit subtle, but I think that's very, very interesting, and it seems to sort of be speaking to what I kind of opened this segment with, a 
lives. And while we have a band, you know, singing in the radio tower, being entertaining, being, you know, controversial and upsetting and provocative, nobody's, you know, people are looking at them and people are angry at them. And they're not angry at the people who are, you know, out in the shadows doing things. It's a very interesting sort of position to put yourself in. And I think, in a way, the band is sort of aware of that. And that's that's a perspective that I didn't get from the Depeche Mode video, was that we are agitators and we are, you know, doing our part. And it, we might not be out there fighting cops, but, you know, we might make it a little bit easier for some people to do that. And we might be helping to get those images and get those messages across in a way that is you know, safe for more people because for sure journalists and bloggers and, you know, activists and such are very much in danger at all times. Just, you know, sharing images of what's actually happening could be propaganda and can be, you know, inflammatory and anti-statist or whatever. But when a band does it, that's art and that's protected, even in Germany, most of the time. And that's... That's a, that's a cool stand, I think. And so, that was a big difference between those two videos for me. And I think that's something really important for us to think about, you know, in a movement building sort of sense, is to recognize and appreciate the, you know, diversity of tactics that we have at our disposal. And that not everyone has to do everything at all times. You know, some people aren't able to do everything at all times. And it's a conversation we used to have a lot in our kind of, uh, anarchist discussion groups and things like that and you know like online you know in, the, in friend groups and whatever as far as like what about people who can't you know revolt <laughs> like disabled people or you know black people people who are you know very very at risk uh, at all times and of course there are times when folks don't have a choice you know unfortunately that happens to fall a lot on black communities and brown communities where you don't have a choice but to revolt. It's not about your safety anymore. It was never really about your safety. But so, you know, those of us who can somewhat, you know, more easily put ourselves in positions of being an agitator and being an educator or an entertainer, we should do that. And we should, you know, take a little bit of the burden off of the people who are literally in danger all the time doing those things. So just a little something to think about and about, you know, the potentials for things like specializations or, you know, diversity of tactics and the ability of multiple people to do really different things at different times depending on the need and their abilities.